So hi, Gordon. Uh, I think no one is interested in MicroProfile and everyone burns to know what was your first computer and how you started programming. So what is your first Hello World? Ah, well, when I was young, I had a friend who had a ZX81 and uh, David Carville. And as well as playing chess on it, we used to do little programs uh, when we can get the memory pack to stay on the back without wobbling off. And then like most of my friends at that point in time, there was a huge uh, home computer scene. So I used to go into the shops in town in, in Glasgow where I grew up and, and write the little kind of like Hello World uh, loops in basic and then or maybe even a beep to annoy the shop uh, workers and, and set them around in a, in a loop. And um, I, I couldn't at that time, I couldn't quite afford my own computer. But I had a friend who had a BBC Micro. Mm -hmm. So we used to do stuff on that. And then after a while, I saved up for an Acorn Electron, which was a sort of cheaper BBC Micro. And it had a strange architecture where it fetched the memory in nibbles, little okay. four-bit sections instead of bytes. And it had sort of some sort of constraints, so it couldn't run all the BBC Micro games. So I remember hacking it to use the screen memory to be able to run some of the great BBC Micro adventure games. Mm -hmm. and uh, using a little text window down the bottom. And uh, the rest of the screen was kind of flickering away as the adventure game uh, used the screen memory as its RAM. But uh, they were really happy days. Lots of my friends were into home computing, and we used to, uh, in those days, we'd play games, but we also kind of tried writing little games and graphic stuff, and people were doing it at school uh, as well. So, um, And in school, I had an RML 380Z, which was like a kind of a school computer. And uh, I actually had a friend who had a Jupiter Ace that could do fourth. Oh, so we did a bit of um, uh, fourth as well when, when I, I was growing up. So we, uh, we had lots of different things going on. I believe uh, the uh, firmware or the OS from Sun stations w was written fourth, right? Ah, yeah, interesting. It's a stack-based language, a bit like the virtual machine, the Java virtual machine. Mm -hmm. So... It's kind of like uh, if you can think in reverse Polish notation, then uh, you'll be very happy programming forth. Cool. Anyway, you are one of my best mm. guests because uh, you had exactly the same computer I had. But um, ah. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you had a ZX81 and I had the, you know, uh, the Amstrad one with a little bit more memory, but it was ZX-based, ah. yeah, and I also did some basic yeah, yeah, they were great computers. Some people use them for businesses as well. And in those days, it was so heterogeneous. There were so many different computers. Um, and people, there was a lot of people, you know, trying to build computers. I knew somebody who was involved with, I think it was a Dragon 32, it was called, or a mm -hmm. Dragon computer, which was a bit of a clone of another design. But they, they you know, in those days, there must have been about half a dozen or, or, or more kind of homegrown computer designs mm -hmm. um, in the UK at the time. Um, um, the ZX81, was it with the rubber keys, right? Um, I don't, th I think, didn't rubber come in with the Spectrum? I thought it was kind of, wasn't it kind of wiped clean? I can't, I can't really remember. But, uh, but uh, at the keys, door. there were like, you know, prepared commands, right? So R was run. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I know what you had. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. And um, how old were you with your first oh, ZX? Yeah. Um, or, or how young? Oh, must oh, well. I'm guessing that it must have been like 13, something like that. Oh, cool, cool. And why you like the computer? So if you you know look at the computer today, uh, I mean, no yeah. one is excited anymore. Yeah. So why you uh, did something with it with 13? 
Uh, it was just really good fun. And it was a kind of a world you could control. And um, I had some friends that were into it. And there was this very funny dynamic in school where uh, I wanted, originally I was going to be a vet. So I was doing lots of sciences. And uh, I was actually in the kind of bottom form class in uh, school. If you wanted to do three in sciences, that's just how it worked. And then you ended up uh, the sort of some of the sort of physio, the, like the physical education classes and things like that were a bit of a jungle. But we, we soon worked out that if you picked computing as an extra option, you could get out of running around a, a, a dark, wet field in Scotland and um, and also all the, all the kind of other things that used to go on in, in the, our kind of physical education at school and swap it for sitting playing um, Planetoid on the BBC Micro, which seemed like a much better option to me. So that was one of the motivations as well that got me into computing at school. Yes, but it's a better I, option. But if I had a choice between basement and Scotland, I would probably choose Scotland, you know. <laughs> yeah well it was i was lucky perfect so now um you you said uh something in the high school you had rml computer or jupiter yeah there, yeah, there was a in school they had these big machines that, okay that um called research machines i think it's research machine limited okay they were kind of like an eight, eight an eight bit micro that um I, I think i don't know i think it was a uk company And they managed to sell them into schools before the BBC Micro program came in, mm -hmm. uh, when a lot of schools got funding to buy uh, BBC Micros. This was the kind of computer that you had to learn programming on. Mm -hmm. And there was one in the class. So you had to kind of do a lot of designing on, on paper. And there was no computing teachers. It was like the maths teacher's hobby uh, subject. Okay. And then you would take turns on this um, 8-bit uh, RML 380Z, I think it was, uh, to run your program. But, it, it, you know, it was good fun. Still basic? Uh, got us going. Yes, I think it was, yeah. Okay. It was all basic in those days. I think uh, the first time I used something else was in uni. They were very Pascal-orientated. Okay. Uh, that's, what they, that's what they used to teach computing because it was so structured. And then later on, a bit of uh, Modular 2, I think it was. Okay. And what was your first, uh, uh, what was your first you know, reasonable program uh, beyond Hello World? Where you can say, okay, it did something interesting. I did a graphics thing that did fractals, cool. uh, like uh, Mand Mandelbrot stuff in different colors, mm -hmm. which I was quite, uh, I quite like that. Mm -hmm. It seems that you could, you could write a very sort of small, uh, the great thing about the BBC Micro Basic above most of the other basics is you could do recursion. Mm -hmm. So it was great for doing things like Mandelbrot programs and you could produce sort of quite detailed images in uh, not that many lines of code. Mm -hmm. Cool. And uh, after Pascal, what was the, the next machine? Oh, gosh. So in, in university, they had some Commodore PETs with the big eight-inch floppy disks. Uh, they used to kind of, uh, they weren't that reliable but or fast, but they kind of worked. And then I remember we had one of the very first um, Apple Macs. And uh, everybody used to queue up to do that because you could write your report on it and actually put pictures inside your documents, which was like a big wow factor then. Mm -hmm. So we actually had, had our own kind of bureau system going where we would, uh, I think our final year projects were almost like camping out 24 hours to use this sort of one Apple Mac for uh, doing our documentation and printing on. Um, and they had, they had um, central Unix type servers um, shared Uh, systems on them and, and they, they were very interesting because I remember the sysadm used to be a, a great bloke he said uh, somebody once asked him you know what is it okay for us to do and he said you can do anything you want to because 
anything that you've got permission to do is okay. You know, he was that confident. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still discovered we could see other people's work on the printer queue. You know, everything, <laughs> the Unix file system, okay. everything was uh, done using files. So we used to be able to spy on other people's work as they were printing it out. So he wasn't completely 100% uh, tight on his security, but but basically it was, it was, I think it was called Dynix. It was a kind of a parallel uh, Unix system. You could run um, things in parallel and there was a C++ library, I think that you could do uh, some parallel tasks in, uh, I remember correctly, Dynix, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, happy days. Yeah, cool. And uh, hmm. Java, How? so what is your yeah. first contact with Java? Ah, well, I got into Java sort of through transactions. Uh, here in Hursley, we do a lot of transactions work, and uh, that included originally before Java, uh, I did some C++ Corva transactions work. And um, CTS? When? Sorry? CTS, yeah, yeah, yeah. CTS, Corva Transaction yeah, the, Service. The, yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, SOM, the object model, and things like that. So we did a lot of work in that. And then when the Java Transaction Service uh, started up, um, I think Hursley wrote the first sort of reference implementation for that. Uh, my first trip to America was as the kind of lead developer of the Java Transaction Service. And this is even before the Java Transaction API existed, you know, before they kind of worked out how to get users to control it. Um, going over to what was then called JavaSoft in um, what, I, what I called Silicon Valley mm-hmm. uh, to kind of transfer the technology for the Java Transaction Service to um, Sun or JavaSoft as it was then, mm-hmm. and then because I because I owned that and, and um, IBM had a kind of duty of service, I moved from the transactions group here in Hursley to the JVM implementation group, and I think at that point we might have been in, I think it was one point two, okay, and then I start I started working on a there was a portability layer called the host portability layer that that did all the sort of mutexes and threads and memory and mallocs and things like that. And I owned that and that and that was implementing those on all the different platforms that the IBM JVM ran on. Uh, I did that for a while. And then after that I owned the class loader, the IBM JVM class loader. So I did a lot of stuff uh, to do with the internal implementations of, of class structures, which was great fun, but it was a slight pain because uh, I always remember if there was any heap corruption it would be my code that would throw the exception. So I got quite a few quite a few calls uh, to look into what was going on with uh, mm-hmm. um, heap corruption and things like that. But mostly it ran really fine. The JVM was a massive, uh, we had massive test systems and customers used to really hammer it in all sorts of innovative ways. So uh, mostly it was pretty reliable. And that was good fun uh, doing the class loading of the JVM. And I got really into Java then. Okay, so you're also aware of CTG, right? The Common Transaction Gateway, probably. Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I I tend to sort of specialize a lot in the, because it was such a big team of people. Okay. Um, and and some of that happened um, after I was in the class loader, and then I kind of left that group quite a few years ago and went off to do. I think I did some I did some Eclipse plugin programming to do with some prototype tooling work, and it was partly ha, because now now the that, question. Do you enjoy, uh, you know, the Eclipse plugin model? I loved it. I loved it. Because oh, really? As a oh, pro- really? <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, because as, as a programmer, I used Eclipse all the time. And I think my ideal job would just be to write edit macros. You know, mm-hmm. if I could be paid to just write edit macros or Eclipse plugins for programming, you know, working on my own tools, 
that would be close to my ideal IT job. So building stuff in Eclipse, uh, I really love doing and seeing um, when you do transactions, a lot of it, and, and also when you do like class loading, a lot of it is like looking through logs and working out what's right and what's wrong. Or we used to spend quite a lot of time making something a few percent faster. You know, you might spend three months making some benchmark, you know, 3% faster. And then a month later, Intel would bring out a chip, which, you know, did even more than that with, with no code changes at all. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I loved that the Eclipse work because you could build stuff and then see it on the screen, you know. And also we, we were interacting with uh, users and showing them stuff. And they were saying, oh, I'd like this a little bit this way or that way. And we could go away and change it and then come back and see, was it like this? So it was, it was, it was kind of... Um, it was kind of a lighter experience, so I, I really loved it. Even even though you might, a lot of the code in Eclipse was very long winded. Exactly, so there was a lot of boil. Yeah, there was a lot of boilerplate, but um, it was such a kind of low. Um, it, it, the program I was running was running in such a low stress environment compared to the JVM class loader that, that I didn't mind the, the extra lines of code. Hey, and you, yeah. It was so much fun doing GUI, GUI stuff um, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it was lots and lots and lots of boilerplate, as you say. Mm-hmm. So um, after university, you immediately joined IBM? Uh, well, yeah, after a couple of interrails, I did, yes. yes. Yeah. I, I thought I was going to go back to university. And then um, the, the research funding for the group I was joining fell through. And then I suddenly thought, oh, gosh, I've got to get a job. And uh, looked around. And IBM were still hiring. This is in the, in the autumn. And so I came to IBM. Um, I think that's well, that thirty years ago now, so that's quite a long time. But I moved around quite a bit inside. Okay, so and uh, JavaSoft mm-hmm. as you started, it was probably JDK one zero, right? One zero. Yes, I guess it must have been. Yeah, yeah. This I, is also I, where, where, a... where I got the Java. And by the way, the JavaSoft.com mm-hmm. page, uh, it was uh, it still works, so you get redirected twice. Uh-huh. I think as so, um, yeah, yeah. So um, this is also my start with Java. Uh, just you know, uh-huh. this was the the first contact with Java. yeah with javasoft and yeah. um regarding transactions so how, how um what i remember is in java mm. we had the jta the java transaction api which was based yeah. on the jts which was the java transaction service and which used yes. behind the scene the ots object transaction service which was uh based on corba so you can have uh, yes. distributed transactions this is how how it worked back then and even now right yeah yeah, and the JTS was very, very close to the corporate transaction service, which of course was very close to the XA spec, the X open XA spec. Mm-hmm. And you see this coming back; um, it's still coming back even today. You know, the, the talk of we're looking at um, you know reactive streams, and people are talking about well, how do we deal with transaction context and flowing transaction context, you know, into um, thread context if, if we want to be kind of lighter on the threads and more uh, portable across threads how do we move transaction context around and sometimes these problems they seem to keep going on you know transactions is the gift yeah keeps on giving so, yeah someone once said to me learn databases because everyone has a database you know and, yeah exactly uh, so uh, mm. my impression is is like um i think it was around 2006 where uh, my, my sql was really popular so um, there was a trend, mm. you know, we don't need transactions. So uh, we can just store everything in MySQL and transactions, uh, we don't need them. And Java is uh, not our J2E back then. It's actually not needed because transactions are complex, hard to understand, so we don't need them. And uh, and this, uh, of course, you need transactions because uh, it is really hard to make something consistent without a concept of uh, 
how to call it unit of work so something has to be done at once yeah and um yeah. so and if you if and if you find it out uh, you will you will suddenly find out you know um actually transactions are uh are interesting productivity feature and then everything comes back in uh, uh, back and and gets even exaggerated so you don't even get transactions so the next question is uh, what about distributed transaction xa and and so forth so um yes yeah so what i would say if you really like to you know implement a distributed system so take a look at transactions take a look at databases so um and and the you know relation between memory and persistent storage and then you are golden yeah. then you can use transactions or not but this is like you now we go going back and forth transaction yes no yes no and this is yeah, actually yeah. really funny so if we just record you know all the blog posts from 2006 and re and, and now reply them right <laughs> now it would be you are still in you know you can just reuse most of the articles even <laughs> yeah i think you're right on the button adam uh, it's a it's not uh you know i'm all everything i say is from a personal perspective but i i always take uh an element of fashion recently you know someone once said to me that the the IT infrastructure sort of became complete about a decade ago and everything since then is just fashion yes. and kind of re reframing things. And yeah. um, I, I remember SQL Server as well. One of the things I did was to take the JDBC driver for SQL Server and they had they had the means of taking a transaction context off and off on and off of a thread. And I wrote an XA JDBC driver that used the, 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 the kind of... Uh, Java Transaction Service APIs to find out what the XA transaction was. And it had a map between the, the SQL Server transaction and the, the XA transaction. And, and, it, and you could just map from one to the other and it made it work. And those concepts are still around. Even uh, yesterday, I was looking at, you know, MicroProfile and the concept of uh, event sourcing, where people, a lot of users, they're sort of saying, well, if I don't have global transactions, how can I maintain state? And um, you know, if I don't have XA distributed commit, wait a second. Uh, this is going ah. to be too interesting. So, uh, what? What? I'm just uh, the last piece is missing uh, for your introduction. So, okay. you started with the class loader uh, with IBM. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. Well, what were you know fast pace to now? So, you did the class loader, and uh, after the class loader, you got the uh, Eclipse uh, plugin tasks, and then what yeah. you did? Yeah. Well, then I went to the storage group, the RAID distributed uh, storage and RAID development in mm -hmm. Hursley. Mm -hmm. And I did that partly because um, I'd, I'd been down in the JVM group. I was down in the kind of host portability layer and looking at kind of all the POSIX semantics and the new Texas and things like that. And there's a group here who've got, um, we've got a building and a whole floor of the building is just full of machines with lots of sort of... Um, fiber channel uh, cables coming out the back and and they they build these fantastic storage controllers out of um it's not commodity hardware it's still enterprise grade hardware but it's enterprise grade pcs mm -hmm. and they're all clustered in a kind of a clustered system which talks um based on um what's the algorithm again that um, anyway, it's based on a, on a sort of clustering system all in linux and it does all this kind of event processing and it's really kind of like techie and it, it there's a lot of people in Hursley because all the machines are in Hursley. So it's, it was quite a good fun group to join. And I got into RAID and the algorithms of uh, RAID and uh, how those all work together. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a bit of that for a few years. And then, and then I looked at um, the skills that I had were very, it was a very interesting world, but uh, there's not that many people in the world doing, you know, RAID and, and clustered software using the kind of, um, that was using a kind of, 
low-level uh, C-type interfaces. Mm-hmm. And I looked around in the local area, and there was an awful lot of uh, Enterprise Java work. So I thought, well, the next thing I'll do, I think I'll go back to Enterprise Java and do that. And uh, and that brought me to WebSphere and Liberty. Right. Um, the, yeah. And that's where I am now. And when was it you moved to Liberty? I think it was about three years ago. Hey, cool. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, by the way, um, Liberty is really great. So yesterday I was in DevOps Poland conference, and I used Liberty mm. half of the talk behind the scenes, and uh, and people were really delighted. So okay, um, they asked me now uh, which uh, dependencies dependencies are you using and none, but uh, which super prompts none. So I guess just you no know, Java eight, and why so fast? I was like, I had no idea. It was always was the case. So it is like. Mm. Um, yeah, mm. so so for three years you're doing Java again, and you are enjoying the experience, the Java experience. Uh, yeah, I am. I think uh, it's Liberty. I think it was a great thing because I started off with this sort of traditional large web sphere, mm-hmm. uh, which is absolutely rock solid and it's great for great for what it does. Uh, but as the as a developer, the sort of uh, edit, compile, test loop isn't quite. Um, you know, it's not always a fast, great, lovely experience to go around that loop if you have to do it more than, uh, you know, a few times an hour. Whereas Liberty is just so fast. Yeah. It, it, you know, can, you can just, well, you know, once you have every, everything set up, you can just hack on it and uh, it just sort of runs almost instantly. You only have to recompile the sort of little project, little sub-project you're in. And because of the OSGI mechanism, it just all runs. So yeah. it's a bit of a dream from a, from a, a, and a server development point of view. Yeah, um, to give the o- to, hacking- to, to give the audience uh, a number. So yesterday the uh, session was fifty minutes long, and in one point, I t- took a look how many deployments I had with Open Liberty, and I had thirty-five. Mm. But the session was not over. I actually forgot to look at, at the end. But I was I'm pretty confident there was more than fifty deployments a session, uh, yes. a conference yeah. session, and uh, deployments took I would say. Two, two seconds at most, and um, yeah, and uh, I used uh, a tool I wrote is a very simple tool. We just copies the war, so there's no magic. So it's a complete rebuild, basically. The tool is called what.sh. So yeah. it just uh, you know watches the sources and and copies the war, kicks um starts Maven clean install, and then the result is copied to uh, to uh, the um, Open Liberty server. And uh, the memory yep. consumption is also very low. So actually, uh, Open Liberty is one of the smallest servers uh, I know so far. And um, yes. yeah, so this is uh, this is uh, amazing, actually. And the old website, I, I would say, is, was also great. So you could have more coffee. You know, there's always time to get a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the Open yeah. Liberty is a little bit a little bit annoying because you have to work all the time. So there are no excuses. You know, so uh, there is no no yeah. no time for breaks. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And sometimes there's a thing uh, that's, uh, I, I know you're absolutely on the button with how everything works, Adam, but there's a, there's also a thing for benefit people listening called a loose application, where if you're hacking in Eclipse, you can set up a little XML file in Liberty so it actually looks at the class files. So as, every time you press save uh, and Eclipse does an automatic recompile of the class file, mm-hmm. Liberty will uh, automatically take that on board. So you can set it up uh, without a kind of a, a, a war file so that uh, as you're editing, literally for me, you know, I'm not so fast, but um, in the time it takes me to move my mouse pointer to the browser, it will have re-absorbed um, the change. This is um, actually a great, te- great tip. Hmm. So uh, what it means is um, I also use NetBeans, for instance, and it saves hmm. and um, and puts, you know, the uh, class files first in an exploded format in target. 
So um, I could mm. set up uh, Open Liberty to look into this folder, and on any change of the files, Open Liberty will reload the the the, the application, yes. right? Yes, that's right. And the thing to Google for is loose application in Liberty. Uh -huh. So send me a link. Mm. I will put it to the show notes, please. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah cool. Certainly. So uh, and now back to transactions. So um, so I just wanted ah. to know to to hear what uh, what was your road to Open Liberty. So um, I would just uh, uh, present my point of view, and then we can talk a little bit about transactions because the next step would be micro profile reactive, and we can do more modern way. So we already covered JTA, JTS, and OTS, and uh, mm. so the first misconceptions of transactions is uh, they are heavy. And this is uh, absolutely not true because um, if you have application server and you say requires new or transactional, it depends on the CDI, what happens then in what I observe is that the thread, the current thread is marked as transactional and this is the overhead. So basically, you know, you're setting the Boolean to true. You are transactional right now. If there are no mm. transactional resources, nothing will happen. So there is no performance hit, right? So uh, the application service prepare, you know, to pass the context somewhere, but um, yeah, but there is no overhead. Uh, uh, there is a no, a, a very very tiny overhead, but it's probably not measurable, right? Yeah, I think that's typically true. There's sort of various um, optimizations. You know, if, if I remember even in the corporate days, if, if there was no resources got involved, you would try to do this kind of like last agent optimization to kind of pass on um, the transaction commit to um, other coordinators that would actually have resources. So, But, but Corba is distributed, right? But with JTA, we have just local transactions, so there is not even Corba involved, I, I, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I'm, but I'm just um, thinking that Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the application servers are quite sophisticated in what they do and trying to make things as, as quickly as uh, work as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. and, and I think transactions, if you need transactions, then I guess the ideal is that they are as heavy weight as they need to be and no heavier. Yes. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, um, I haven't used a lot of um, transactions in terms of writing applications and things like that. Because although I, I work in the CDI, uh, the squad that I work in now does do CDI, and mm -hmm. we do deal with some transaction stuff in that. Mm -hmm. um, I am usually not down in the nitty gritty of how the transactions work in, yeah. in, in WAS. Yeah. Why I'm asking you this, because um, so mm. I'm, I'm actually using transactions all the time, and I also advise yeah. clients and do some code reviews. And uh, for me, simplicity is this. And as important as performance, because you know if something gets too complicated, no one will understand that, and the application will have trouble. And um, and what we do is um, just imagine we have like Jax RS service, which uh, mm. uh, accepts uh, a request from from the outside. And the first thing that happens, we start transaction as early as possible, just by doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So if we have one EJB, it is um, automatically required. With CDI, you would put transactional on it. It's also required mm -hmm. transaction level. And then the transaction, you know, from the method is propagated to all methods because the methods are called per reference. So we have like facade and then small services. This facade is called boundary and the small services in control layer. And um, yeah. and the cool story is, um, if you think from the business perspective, this is uh, always right because, you know, every JAXRS interaction is actually a use case and has to be transactional. And uh, yes. what I observe sometimes that the uh, developers start to know to optimize and try to deactivate the transactions on, on particular methods on uh, on the facade level, which can cause, of course, some trouble because if they forget that and someone calls the methods, then we have you no know, uh, half stuff is transactional, the other isn't, 
And my point is just, yeah. you know, don't care about transactions. Let transactions be started and if a set level, if they are needed, uh, they are needed. If they are not needed, there's no overhead. And funny enough, yeah. I measured uh, the performance impact. And sometimes if you deactivate transaction, it's a little bit slower than if you do nothing. And um, I, I, I try, you know, to investigate why this is the case. And, um, and the reason is if you say never, the application server has to check there is no transaction. And if there yeah. is one, it has to throw exception. But if you do yeah. nothing, it will just stutter. So there is one if less, you know. And so therefore, yeah. yeah. So from the business perspective, what I advise, don't care about transactions, you know. Just go with the defaults in Java E. And then every every facet is going to be transactional. And then everything is going to be consistent. So this is why I'm asking now about transactions. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think that sounds sensible. And it also fits in with a good pattern of, you know, build something that works first and then solve the performance problems you yeah. know, once they once they arise. You know, uh-huh. as long as you get your design, you know, sane, then quite often there's so much going on or, and often it doesn't work in the way that people expect under the hood. That I think if you try and double guess what the system's doing uh, because you think it'll be faster, unless you have data. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, and you, you, you can often be wrong. I think the thing to do is to always measure and uh, uh, look for the data rather than kind of a human story about what's going on in, in modern systems, especially because there's been so many years now of optimizations and, and ways of doing things that often systems don't work uh, in, in the kind of most obvious way that people imagine they do underneath. Mm-hmm. And if you go with the model, like the mm. facade starts a transaction, and let's imagine we get JPA, Java Persistence, just just an idea, or we can start, do JMS or whatever like, but uh, I think um, JPA is the uh, the most interesting part. What do you, yeah. what in larger application, what you can do, you can inject the entity manager, which represents, you know, the storage to whatever class mm. you like. And if mm. they take part at the same transaction, you will see the entity which was fetched, you know, the first time as a reference yeah. to all other classes. And without yeah. transaction, you would get a copy. So this is you know, the, yeah. the first added value where it's not even the performance better. I mean, the performance is really better because you have one object and then multiple copies. But the really thing is it cannot be become inconsistent within the call, which, uh, which is a yeah. big deal, actually. And uh, I, I was uh, involved in contracts. We, we, sh- we try to you know, resolve these errors. And the problem was always someone tried to optimize the transactions and deactivate them. And then we got two copies of the same object in the in, in, in a request. Yes, yes. And it can help you with locking as well. You know, if you if you if you're in the same transaction, you don't have to worry about the transactional locking of the underlying resources as much. Yeah. So transactions for me is like, you know, they are interchangeable with threat of execution or request scoped. If you if you if you know see CDI request scoped, every request mm. is a transaction in a business context. If you if you're coming from, you know, from from JAXRS world. So it's like, you know, someone calls your service, microservice from, mm-hmm. from outside HTTP. Mm-hmm. So then every request is a transaction, right? There's some interesting things on the horizon about, you know, trying to loosen up context from threads, you know, with uh, people talk about Loom coming and more reactive stream-based type processing. And there's sort of uh, various models coming from people like Lightbend, uh, more kind of actor-based. And some of the spring uh, transaction context going with a stream. I think it's still interesting. You know, you'd think transactions might be over, but it's still interesting and still still developing. And if anything, it's it's great 
to me that you're talking about transactions in terms of the making life simple, because I think a lot of what's uh, happening for users at the moment is added complexity. You know, we look at microservices and and clusters being run and um, heterogeneous systems, maybe different languages, different consistency models. It, it's adding lots and lots of layers of consistency for the user. And when they have to manage um, their own consistency, it's just another complexity that they have to think about when really they just want to write their business logic. Yeah. And um, so transactions. So we have now the the um, entity manager and what the entity manager does, I would say it is very similar to what the database does, does as well. So basically in a transaction, so correct me if I'm wrong, is um, you are working in memory as long as you say commit and uh, uh, this is oversimplified, but at commit time, the memory gets you know, flushed to persistent storage. So this is where the entity manager passes to a database and the database memory passes the context to a, to a file system. And uh, and on rollback, the uh, memory gets cleaned up, right? So just, you know, looking well, aside. I think, I think, yeah, I think if you're at the sort of application or middleware of maybe third-party libraries, there's a phase that happens even before the prepare phase, mm -hmm. um, which is a kind of like a pre-prepare um, which allows people who've got things in memory, whether it's like cache job objects or writes that they they're, they haven't written to the database to guarantee to be able to write them down into the resource managers before the, the kind of traditional two-phase commit happens. So that when, um, because the ordering of which actors get the prepares uh, isn't really defined, mm -hmm. it can guarantee that before the very first prepare goes to any resource manager, Anyone that anyone that wants to register for that pre-prepare phase will have already written uh, things they want the resource manager to work out whether it can commit or not. Yeah, in two-phase commit. So what I understand is understood is um, the uh, prepare phase. It just flushes the state to a persistent storage or somewhere, and commit just releases the log, right? But I think there's a third phase, um, which is before the prepare phase which is a kind of a pre-prepare, uh -huh. which allows people to put all the data that might be uh, in flight in memory into the resource managers that are going to take part in that two-phase commit. Okay. And um, so I think transactions so far are covered. So the, the remaining, remaining statement is the misconceptions that a two-phase commit is uh, safe. So it is safe, but you have to catch XA exceptions, right? So you cannot just rely blindly that it will always work. Because the uh, resource managers can run to conditions like uh, timeouts, and then the global transaction coordinator has to decide uh, what to do. And sometimes it cannot decide, so you get uh, funky errors like heuristic hazard, heuristic mix, or uh, yeah, something like this, right? Yes, yes. I, I always remember when I, when I worked on uh, KixOS 2, and we had these um, you know, very interesting error log messages about transactions being, you know, kind of in doubt or timed out or whatever. And then we saw um, uh, the Microsoft NT, uh, I think we had a Microsoft NT transaction service. MTS. And they had on their, their yeah, um, yeah, was that what it was called? And, Microsoft, and Microsoft transaction GUI. service, right? MTS. Microsoft. That's right. That's, yeah. that's right. That's right. And they had this great GUI and, and they had this kind of like a red ball for something that rolled back, a green ball for something that worked. And I think it was something like a sort of spinning orange ball just to the kind of left of the, the transaction uh, ID in the log saying, you know, this transaction is kind of 
um, it needs to be kind of uh, in, in, there needs to be some intervention because it's 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 not gone one way or the other. And I just looked at it and I thought, you know, that's so easy to use and understand compared to you know reading our error log messages. Uh, they have a green, you know, just like a traffic light. Uh, it seems so sensible to me. Yeah. So um, this is exactly right. What you said is, uh, if you have two-phase commit or distributed transactions, you always will have to have, you know, uh, human intervention because if su su such a, a heuristic hazard or heuristic exception happens. Uh, actually, yeah. someone with business knowledge has, has to decide what happens. And what usually, at least what you will have to do is not to put the uh, the um, the context, the error context to a kind of uh, dead letter queue and uh, resolve it later. But something, and what I see in projects sometimes, and sometimes very often, is completely ignored. You know, try, try, catch, throwable, and if something happens, no one cares. So y your system can really become <laughs> inc inconsistent with that. Yeah, yeah. The the other thing I remember MTS added to the kind of world of the distributed transactions is they kind of solved the diamond problem in in XA and uh, the OTS and JTS things that there was always this issue of if, if a transaction arrived at a distributed node from two places, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, 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 which one would sort of control the court, the, the actual two phase commit. And I remember the transaction. Microsoft Transaction Service solved that by having a kind of a global ID, and they did something in their um, .NET infrastructure because they, they they had more to work with that they could deal with, uh, you know, recognizing a, trans a distributed transaction coming in from a, a second time from a different node as a kind of different um, subordinate coordinator. Okay. Um, I, yeah, they hired some really good people. They, I think they kind of. I remember there were some old school people who literally kind of wrote the book on transactions and they hired some very good transactions people and they, they wrote a good system. Yeah. And uh, the global transaction scope is not what we called XID and two-phase commit? Is something different? But, it, but it, I thought you have this sort of distributed network. Uh, sort of, you have, the, it's like a kind of um, a composite in the Gang of Four pattern terms. So you have core... Uh, Subordinate coordinators, which coordinate the resources and the and the actual coordinators that are acting as resources underneath them, and it sort of cascades out in a tree, mm -hmm. and then it comes back in 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 a tree, and um, these sort of like subordinate transactions sometimes they can be implemented with something that might append onto the transaction ID, okay. with the fact that that co that coordinator knows that it's dealing with a global you know the, its coordinator has a transaction ID and it's allowed to kind of mess about with the transaction a bit. Okay. Uh, for the people that registered with it. Okay, got it. And okay, so now um, transactions are request response, so they will block until they are resolved. So we covered local transactions, distributed transactions a bit. Now the question is, uh, now we do some uh, reactive work. Now, why we can do better with something different to transactions or what is the advantage, you know, to do something different what you did so far? I think, I think there's... Um... There's, there's two things. I think that people talk about reactive programming and reactive systems. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you come into reactive from the outside, a lot of the material that you see is to do with uh, back pressure mm -hmm. and systems that perform, you know, well at scale. You know, and people might say, you know, you have some sort of application and something happens, whether it's Black Friday or, um, you know, something you get met, voted on some yeah. uh, slash dot website or something. And you have this sudden... Uh, um, large load comes into your system and you have all these emergent behaviors which cause your system to basically act under a load that you couldn't really have system tested 
and um, a, a lot of systems might struggle with that, uh, with the scaling and so on. And the, what the reactive back pressure can give, if you have sort of end-to-end back pressure, is that the system, you know, it still will be under strain, but at least it will be progressing as best it can. And a, a lot of people do talk about that as the benefit of reactive, but when when I've been spending a bit more time with it, um, a bit like um, uh, just just, you know, uh, just a short interruption yeah. because the uh, yeah, back sure. pressure back pressure is uh, really funny because we had back pressure on application servers for years actually. Everything was back pressured on application servers, right? You know, starting with all the yeah. pools, there was a, always a max size of yeah. pool. So um, we had, you know, the incoming yeah. thread pools. We had uh, even the um, d- uh, data sources and JDBC connections pools are nothing else than bulkheads and with back pressure. And, um, yeah, that's uh, so true. Yeah, and no one was interested in it. So actually, I, I, yeah. I remember yeah. 10 years ago, I, I gave, you know, performance talks at Java 1 about Lightfish. It was uh, more than 10 years ago. So yeah, nice, but we don't need it. We go with Tomcat, and now I know, yeah. uh, and now they uh, they move on and do some Tomcat work or or, or Jetty or whatever. And now back pressure yeah. is the thing, and I get no uh, constant, no questions. Do application server support back pressure and uh, and circuit breaking, and and bugheads? Yeah. And I say, hey, this is nothing else we did, you know, for twenty years, and uh, now we have the term. Yeah, of course uh, they are supporting this, and I almost forgot about that because it was very natural. This is what we did for years. Like you know, we have an EJB with max pool size, and we can say what happens if this uh, the you know the amount of parallel transaction is reached. So there was back pressure, yeah. and sometimes you got five or three, or sometimes you got something else. But this was you know the the natural protection of application servers, and this is why yeah. actually uh, this was a huge advantage of application servers over pure web containers back then. Yeah, yeah, I, I could talk to you all day, Adam. It's great because you're exactly right. You're exactly right. We when did anyone ever say, "Oh, the big problem with my um, conversation between my DB2 client API and the server, or my SQL server client and the server is there just isn't good enough flow control?" You know, mm-hmm. nobody ever said that because it it, it was not a problem. It, you either you you were pulling data down in um, you know cursors or when you wanted to use connections to put stuff onto the database, you know, if you needed to, you had to queue to put stuff on. Mm-hmm. So this sort of reframing of uh, a kind of, um, in my experience, other people may have different experiences of a non-problem as with a kind of name, nameable tag is is not necessarily solving the real problems, you know, that customers have. And this, I mean, there's great work in things like um, R2DBC, we can see, you know, innovative stuff happen in terms of database drivers, but I don't think the customer value is in having better flow control to the database. It comes from other things, and I yeah. think for me, I, 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 I say oh, one thing: yeah, okay. the customer. So actually, the customers don't have such problems. As so my customers, usually yeah. there is a huge, you know, difference between conference talks and real world. So in real world, yeah. the applications are yeah. less, uh, far more boring and less scalable than uh, the you know the consultants on uh, on and various conferences actually would wish, and even what is widely underestimated, you know, the the raw performance on a single node server. So we are in projects uh, in Java E. We had you no know, uh, sustaining load of several thousand transactions per second on one node. So, and if you yeah. start multiple nodes, uh, then we got to you know twenty thousand transactions per second, and this is a lot for even a big business in Europe. So, this is nothing for Netflix, yeah. but this is a lot, you know, for an e-commerce shop or whatever you're doing right now. 
And um, yeah. I can just, I, I only have, you know, a few projects with a massive big data. All other projects, you know, they have performance requirements, but my clients are really extremely happy with uh, the yeah. performance of application servers. And now it comes without any optimization. So we didn't optimize anything. So there was yeah. a, no, no JVM, so no garbage collector, nothing. Just, you know, ship the yeah. simple stuff to production. And now consultants like me, I'm also a consultant. So we go to conferences and talk, you know, look. Netflix, Facebook, Google have these requirements, mm. and now we need you know, mm. to do whatever and come back and everyone is confused. So I, I would say um, th this is the problem. Like, you know, there are the business don't have such problems in general. Then the developers yeah. come back from conference and say, hey, look, now we have to be reactive. And I was in, you know, ACA-based reactive projects where uh, uh, developers asked me how to debug the system because everyone was everything was asynchronous and at the end you know the the user yeah. interface was synchronous <laughs> and if if you have yeah. a synchronous user interface and everything is asynchronous this is really hell this is like you know this is like uh, yeah this is so uh, true. mission impossible actually right and and they built yeah, you know, uh, specific tools and i asked them why you are doing this and they told me yeah they were at conference and they wanted to scale it's like but even i mean even if all all clients on on, in your company you would use your system at once you, you wouldn't get you know this requirement i mean this is what what you are doing here you know and this is um, yeah it's so true yeah but um i, I think there's the, yeah. there's a the meme for that the meme for that or the phrase sometimes it's used here is uh you are not google you know i think someone wrote a blog post or something yeah, and, it, and it sort of touch, touches on the, the the meme that you're saying you know you are not google but in terms of kind of thought leadership i guess um People who are at kind of internet scale type companies, they're seen as being the kind of uh, technology leaders and they're mm -hmm. solving their problems. And um, I was chatting to somebody about, uh, it, was in a, it was in an Uber actually, in, in a, it was at a conference and I was chatting to someone else in the Uber. And we were talking about um, a, a reactive platform, which is very sophisticated and, and does lots of fantastic things. And he, he was saying that in my shop, we have a very mixed set of people and we were trying to use this sort of very clever software. And the people that were you know, enjoying it were the very clever people. And it was a kind of a human problem in a way where they were, um, they were trying to get stuff you know, out the door and working. And they maybe had too much sophistication for what they needed to do. And he said in the end, the, the kind of experiment that they did with Reactive got part because they were you know, dealing with that extra complexity and, and more difficulty with debugging things. And they, they, they didn't necessarily uh, see themselves as solving problems that they knew they were going to have with, with the application. And they, and they went with more traditional techniques. Yeah. So the developer gets bored and then they'll search for new shiny things. So this is like, um, yeah, what, yeah. what happens yeah. in the world. But um, back to, let's say, I mean, this reactive thing is really interesting, but uh, what we didn't explain what reactivity actually means. So mm. in the in the classic ah. in the classic yeah. definition, it's like you had a formula where like A plus B equals C, and if you change on B or 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 A, the C would reevaluate yeah. re it itself. So it would you could apply reactive patterns even to data binding in user interfaces, right? Yeah, that's all right. It came, the original phrase, I mean, I think before it was used in the current context, there was kind of a reactive functional programming, which is exactly that. You know, you've, you've described there a small function and there was this notion of uh, functional reactive programming. But in our current context, 
it's uh, like ob- observer, like observe, uh, like this observer pattern yeah, with functions. Right? Yeah, it's exactly exactly a pub. It's a pub sub system. Originally, mm-hmm. it came from the you know .dot net uh, reactive extensions, mm-hmm. where the, it was just the ability to subscribe to uh, events on a topic, and it didn't even have back pressure originally. The mm-hmm. the concept of adding in the kind of like uh, request and mm-hmm. uh, back pressure was was added on after it was already the, the reactive extensions for .net. So it was it was merely originally a pub sub system where you could react to things happening, and then then people ported that because of the push to have .NET across different languages. People ported that um, uh, reactive extensions for .NET to, to to Java, and then you got RX Java, and and then the sort of system spread from there. I think. Mm-hmm. And but I think when I in, when I look at uh, what Reactive has given, a bit like the early Java uh, days, you know. It wasn't so much that Java could run on lots of platforms because, you know, I had I had POSIX C compilers that could compile to lots of platforms. It was the kind of all the libraries that were shipped with Java that, that made it so powerful. And I think Reactive is a little bit like that because for me it's not the it's not the back pressure that, that makes it powerful. It's the kind of the fact that you can plug things together because of the power of Java generics and this sort of simple interface between a publisher and a subscriber so you can get different technologies and if they are you know in quotes reactive there's a way of plumbing them together with a kind of small amount of java mm-hmm. where in the past what you'd have to do would be to use that technology's apis to pull everything out into local variables and then use the next technology in the in your kind of application chain set of apis to push things from your java variables back into that technology mm-hmm. And and reactive does has the have the potential uh, when you get kind of comfortable with programming it in those in those sort of functional terms to condense quite a bit of kind of Java glue code that's gluing these kind of different technologies together. For me, that's the the promise of of what reactive can give. Mm-hmm. I um, used or misused reactive once, and it actually worked great is for input validation in UI. So it was like you know, imagine username and password, and both of the text mm. field has to be filled in. And if they are filled in, yeah. the uh, OK button or login button has to be um, has to be active. Otherwise, it otherwise this is di- disabled and cannot be pushed. So, and this was actually yeah. you have two event sources, and with either you, they change the state, and uh, and uh, if you change the state of either username or password, the uh, button gets active. And this was very easy. So you could get rid of a mediator pattern, something in the middle, and just uh, reactive, yeah. you know, to, to have complex validations of user interfaces. And by the way, they were also very easy to test because you can replace the input fields with whatever you liked. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I, th- I remember uh, last year at uh, Code One, I wanted to do a little demo on what reactive was. And it's kind of not really reactive, but I, I wrote a little thing that used some JavaScript to gray out a button. And then that spoke to the server, or the server spoke to it with, with some web sockets, mm-hmm. so that if there wasn't enough, uh, you know, request end tickets, it, it told the browser to gray out the button that would send more work in. Yeah. And it, okay, it's not it's it's not reactive in the kind of first hundred yards, as it were, or first hundred meters, but it, it was a visual representation of how load uh, can be pushed back on all the way up to where it's originated in. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a we had a we had a big example here in the UK of of a bank that uh, didn't test a new system under load properly. And and even though they did stress test it, and when it went out uh, to the customers, there was one part of the chain, I believe, that um, for messages, when it went above a certain um, 
capacity, it would start to spill over into storing things persistently on disk. And the problem was that people writing messages were writing them into memory, but it was the oldest messages that hadn't yet been processed that were kind of being spilled out onto disk. So people processing them, you know, code processing the messages had, then had to read from disk. And as soon as it reached that tipping point, um, then, you know, the system went off. You know, at that point, the plane, like a huge star cruiser, kind of slowly tipping to one side and, and heading towards uh, a planet, you know, that the system went over the horizon and, and it didn't didn't react well to the load. And then when um, when people heard there was problems, there was more people used the system and it, and it basically it was quite difficult for them to quickly yeah. recover. Sounds uh, similar to, you know, I don't know whether you remember, EGB passivation problem. So they were in memory, but uh, on the load, they mm. could be passivated, which, uh, you know, kicked in the yeah. uh, serialization on disk, which was orders of magnitude slower, which slows down. Yeah. yeah. And then you get, you know, it never recovered from that. So, um, yeah. But uh, now, uh, in our microprofile mm. world, what uh, reactive yes. basically means is you could consider WebSockets as a event source. I can uh, like list, for instance, it could be event source. You could consider WebSocket as a list of WebSocket events, and you can apply Java eight stream and filter functions to it, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. Yes, uh, you can treat. I mean, when 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 people sometimes ask me, you know, how can get into, into reactive? I often say to them, uh, and I should maybe follow this advice again myself, is to, you know, learn about Java streams, you know, underlying Java streams, learn about Java functional programming, learn about generics, learn about lambdas until all that stuff is in your toolbox and just, you know, you can use it without thinking. And then the reactive concepts will come easily. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, for for request response or JAXRS, it is, I would say, this is less interesting because it's request response, which is really giant, is more like WebSockets, which is uh, really hard to program, full duplex, you know, request, request response. And uh, what you could, of course, do is, you know, to uh, convert the uh, HTTP JAXRS request response into HTTP events, for instance. So you can put the event somewhere and treat them like a reactive stream. And um, what I always wanted myself, and you can probably uh, uh, answer this, the code mm. behind the uh, event source has to be actually pretty ugly because what you will have to do is to, you will have to start a thread and block until something happens and then, you know, receive the event and, and forward it to the event source, right? I think different, I think you, you have, a, if it depends on what libraries you use, you, there is quite a lot of flexibility. I no, think but that... if you implement, you know, the mm. library, so you are implementing the library uh. Uh, microprofile, so you have to implement, you know, the reactive messaging or reactive extensions in with microprofile yeah, yeah. so you will have to yeah. implement that so what it means is uh, if you have for instance um, http you will have you know mm. to wait until uh, the uh, the request is over so, and in a thread for instance you have to do something yeah. and, and then you know read it and pass it to the to the event source right yeah i think this it gets very complicated this echoes a conversation that was said recently where someone said oh uh, people trying to relate the microprofile fault tolerance uh, spec and its support for asynchronous and using that in uh, uh, in a reactive way. People were saying, well, you know, the, this spec isn't reactive at all. And someone was saying, oh, well, you know, but it can do asynchronous stuff. And they were saying, no, no, that's still going to block the thread. Just because it's happening not on your thread, it's still blocking, it's still synchronous, it's still not reactive, it's still an ugly uh, fit. And I think I think a lot of uh, in your brain, you're you're probably ahead of most people in terms of 
thinking in a systems way and how things will scale and how things work together just because you've got so much experience of working with different users. But I think the the boundaries between, you know, when you've got something, in, for example, in, in JAX RS, which even uses the word, you know, reactive, when they're mostly talking about, um, you know, completable future and, and asynchronous type stuff, it kind of muddies the water even more uh, in terms of what does it mean to be non-blocking? What does it mean to be reactive? And if you're trying to, uh, there's, I think there's some stuff in REST Easy that tries to implement uh, reactive over JAX RS, and they, they use server sent events, I think, for yeah. doing. Uh, yeah, this is a uh, part of JAX RS, so you can use uh, server sent events. Yeah. And there is an RX actually um, call. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, you, you use the, um, if, you, if you do this, you get you know, the standard yeah. Java 9 implementation, but you can also pass RX Java or whatever, yeah. like. But in, yeah, in and the, you can in, register. It has a map of handlers, so you can pass a class as a key and a handler, and then it, it, you know it will it will load your handler depending on uh, what you've you know mm -hmm. the, the RX one that takes a parameter. I think it is. Mm -hmm. And but in ideal reactive world, so what I will assume we get, let's say, uh, I could inject uh, event source, let's say HTTP event source, and the database event source, and then you know use uh, already database sync. And then use the event source with my Java 8 knowledge and, you know, map filter, whatever. And then, you know, the result yeah. is, is, will be uh, consumed by the, by the database sync and I'm basically done. This is actually the puristic um, reactive programming applied to microprofile, right? I think that's, the, that's where people want to head. I think when we have more reactive, uh, when we have a kind of more reactive database, um, set of classes or there's some things in uh, Spring, for example, where you can kind of plug things together mm -hmm. where the amount of code that, that is in the middle uh, can be reduced. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's where we're going, I think, with Reactive. It's the ability to kind of plug things together without having to use local variables in, in the middle. And ultimately, um, a customer entity should be able to flow, you know, all the way from an HTTP into a database store um, without very much customer code at all. Yeah. And this could actually happen if we get uh, environments like, I don't know whether you're aware of it, uh, Knative or something like this, where we get cloud events, which are, uh, which yeah. whatever happens is converted to an event first, you know, regardless whether yeah. it's HTTP or, or message or whatever. Then it would make sense. It, in my opinion, might, makes lesser sense if we have, you know, still request response, sometimes servlet-based model like JAXRS is not doesn't have to be servlet, but is mostly a servlet. And and then you know, if you, I already call the server and it blocks, and I have a method with uh, with with parameter and return values, it's really hard, you know, to to be efficient or productive with reactive uh, extensions in this world, right? Because there is already something, there's already a break there between my request response and uh, the reactive world. I think it's a, it's a very interesting topic. If you, if, you're, if you connect two systems, say, for example, with Kafka, you know, what you've got there is a massive buffer. Um, and then what does, what does back pressure mean there? You know, you've, you're doing, um, if you've got a re request going down some topic and then a sort of response is coming, you know, later on, on another one. What does it mean if you have back pressure there? Are you are you actually trying to disconnect uh, sort of temporarily the performance of your front and back ends, or do you want them to kind of um, um, back pressure immediately, or is it just a sort of capacity level? I think uh, these sorts of design questions are are um, 
it, it takes experience, I think. I don't think we've kind of worked out um, in the large how to design for uh, using, where to use reactive back pressure and where to use capital buffering. And, and it's almost kind of like a trending thing. You know, if, you're, if, you, if, the, if, the, if the work rate coming in is trending so that it can be a problem, you know, what sort of smoothing function have you got in your uh, queuing? It's almost like queuing theory, you know, and, and are you heading for some problem that you want to do something about because of some policy statement you've got in terms of um, the capacity of, of your buffer or you know, the arrival rate is, is, is triggering something? It's, it's quite a sophisticated set of thinking that um, I don't really see documented as a, as a kind of theory. And as you say, many customers, real customers, don't have uh, to worry about these systems. They, they, they build a system which is easily large enough and fast enough, and it, and it will work. Yeah. And uh, Kafka is a, is a trending topic right now, so I get uh, questions about Kafka all the time. And uh, what I yeah. hear a lot, which really reminds me the MySQL discussion 10 years ago. So, like, Kafka is easy, you know, way easier than GMS. Why we don't do Kafka? And what I see, like, Hello World example from a conference, where they just have, you know, single note Kafka and uh, one topic and it's really easy to consume. And my answer is always try to set up Kafka, you know, uh, production-like, at yeah. least with three yeah, yeah. Uh, Zookeeper and all the stuff. And if you understand yeah, yeah. Zookeeper, and uh, I don't know whether you saw, you know, the Kafka configuration, like 500 parameters. If you understand yeah. that, then you can do whatever you like. So there is, I mean, then you can you can, you can can get rid of Kafka completely or implement your own Kafka. I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, you know, this is, and, and this is always yeah. like people expect, you know, like uh, a golden technology with, you can with zero knowledge send something back and forth in a distributed system and this will never yeah. work. And, and this is, yeah. uh, this comes back and forth. Okay, cool. And, and I think that's that's where the value. There's a lot of companies now that are sort of running Kafka as a concierge service. You know, IBM has event streams, yeah, which will run on either public cloud or you know the IBM Cloud Private. And you know, Azure has one. Google's got a, uh, a tie-in with Confluent. Um, I think all the big tech companies are kind of running Kafka as a service because they're recognizing exactly that uh, what you're saying, Adam. Yeah, but you still will have you know to configure the Kafka a little bit. And for instance, we use uh, Kafka uh, Kinesis on Amazon. And uh, what mm. was not clear that the messages only are retained for two weeks, for instance, right? So that you will mm. still have to understand what happens behind yes. the scenes. Yes. But now be more specific. So your work on MicroProfile, mm. there's reactive messaging yeah. and reactive message operators, right? There are two, two, uh, two things you are involved right now. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, and, well, three just maybe. So the first thing we did was uh, reactive streams operators. And that's basically... Um, a kind of uh, reactive streams, you know, the kind of PubSub uh, interface implementation, plus some operators. And if you can imagine, um, a lot of that work was initiated by uh, Lightbend and James Roper. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were interested in uh, bringing more reactive programming to the enterprise Java programmer. So they, you know, they observed that the flow interface was in the, the JVM. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have any useful, there wasn't any useful operators. You know, flows there so that it can be used in other specs. But without a useful set of operators like like what's in, um, uh, what you get from Lightbend or RX Java or Reactor, then users aren't really going to use it. So they did, they were they were thinking about, you know, is this a jet? Is it a microprofile spec? And uh, Reactor Streams operators as a spec was born. And it wasn't primarily intended as um, a kind of business application interface, 
But it's more of a kind of enabling layer to do the plumbing, on top of which things like uh, reactive messaging, which is basically a, a kind of message-driven beams uh, type way mm -hmm. of, of accessing reactive streams, for that to sit on top of reactive streams operators. Mm -hmm. And then um, just yesterday, um, there's some talk about perhaps having a, a work group to look at doing a bit more of uh, event sourcing on top of reactive messaging in a way that Debezium does. I know mm -hmm. you had uh, Gunnar Morley on. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he's he's done he's done some great work with uh, Debezium mm -hmm. that can sort of send change events around. And mm -hmm. so it might be possible to do something a little bit like what they do, but based on top of microflow reactive messaging. Okay, so this event sourcing is like uh, Debezium is like treating the SQL database as event source. So what they did, they implemented hooks to uh, the database yeah. engines. So and they can receive yeah. the events and convert them to Kafka events, for instance. That's right. They do. They they can do. For example, you could set up a a cursor or suck out a table, and it, it will send the information um, across Kafka as change events. But for example, say you open up a cursor and it reads everything in that. Um, it knows the timestamp. If you say you have a repeatable read cursor, it knows the timestamp that that set of data was taken. And it also has some great hooks into the database's log. And what it can do is um, it can look in that log and from um, the timestamp that your cursor was taken, it can see what data might have been added after that cursor set was generated. And it can continue to add new data items that might appear into the stream of change events that it's sending to another system. So you could uh, keep, a, and all this can be done without changing the application or even stopping the application running. Mm -hmm. So you can suck out contents of a database table that's live and, um, and also at the same time keep in sync with changes to that live database table and send them across um, Kafka using change events to be received by uh, some other receiving technology, which can either put them into a database or um, you could write a Kafka connector that does what you like. Mm -hmm. And and the concept of the the the, the microprofile event sourcing is to kind of do something similar to that, but a bit more at an application level. Mm -hmm. So if we in reactive messaging, we've got the concept of a connectors, which is a, which is you know initially you could imagine it as an abstraction over something like Kafka, mm -hmm. but um, if we enable uh, a system like Debezium to use uh, reactive messaging connector it'll kind of make it more flexible in terms of what we use to send the change events around. Um, I was reading interestingly uh, recently about uh, Lightbend have done some stuff to do with event sourcing where they actually use gRPC mm -hmm. uh, as a kind of distribution mechanism. So um, there's, there's sort of various interesting things. And, and Kafka is, is, is a fantastic system and they're kind of slowly expanding to lots of other things um, such as, you know, connectors and, and, type schemas and things like that. And um, Debezium uses those, but sometimes I think some of our users, we might want to use Kafka for the distribution, but other things for perhaps doing the type conversion, whether that's microprofile config or other things. Um, um, we want to kind of have flexibility and allow people to choose Kafka for, for, for what it's great at, but, not, but then not necessarily opt into the whole growing Kafka ecosystem. Yeah, and Kafka is not the only thing. You know, there are other great mm. technologies like, for instance, Apache Pulsar. I don't know whether you are aware of it. This is yeah. like, uh, like yeah. Kafka Next. And it is dangerous a little bit, you know, to be completely dependent on Kafka right now because uh, I think we get the next fashionable 
technology in yeah. two to three years again. So yeah, yes. but going back so to ev event sourcing with MicroProfile, so what yeah. I could do with that, for instance, I could implement my own event source implementation, which will, for instance, pull something and generate events, and then above the uh, event sourcing interface, yes. you could use you know yeah. our own operator and and and, and consume the event yes. and do some nicer work, right? Yes, yes, that's it. That's it. this is exactly the idea. But it does fit into your kind of like new and sparkly technology because at the moment what we're doing is just trying to kind of uh, assemble a team of people that are interested in working on it. So it's completely open. If anyone's interested in working on change events in MicroProfile, then you know have a look at the Google group, uh, mm -hmm. the Google MicroProfile group, and there's a repo over in the, under the small eye implementation mm -hmm. um, area where we're looking for anyone who's interested in hacking on it or having ideas you can raise issues or express interest in, in contributing mm -hmm. uh, please send me the link so i will put it to show notes yeah. show notes mm -hmm. okay, okay and, thank you and the um is, is there any work going on directly with cloud events right now in micro profile um no it has been mentioned um and we 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 for reactive um, messaging Mm -hmm. We have a kind of message envelope where we, you know, take a, a generic type from a user and we wrap it in a in a, in a message envelope, mm -hmm. which is basically for handling uh, acknowledgement. And mm -hmm. we are we have got an issue to look at, uh, you know, uh, the nesting of these envelopes. So, mm -hmm. you know, what happens if you want to uh, get a user domain type, you know, put it in a, in a reactive message, but then maybe put that in a cloud event. No, have we we don't we haven't done that work yet to have kind of nested envelopes, but we are aware of it. This is like what soap did, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, nothing's new. No, or I, you know, I, nothing, nothing is new. But the funny story with soap in the nesting was uh, it was actually never used. So um, at the beginning of soap, everyone wanted to have soap because of the uh, relaying, so you can pass the message along and enrich the message. And at the end, soap yeah. was misused as remote procedure call. Just for that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, cool. I mean, it's. Uh, mm. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Well, you were what you were saying was making me think of. I haven't yet researched it, but you know, using messaging and then it ends up as a remote procedure call. And then I then I I was watched a Lightbend um, presentation yesterday where they were using gRPC, and I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting development. I need to go and look more into that. Yeah. So perfect. So where people can find you on the internet and uh, what's your Twitter handle and so forth, or if you have some interesting links, just yeah. Um, I I got into Twitter. In, I think I got into Twitter March this year, and my handle is Gord Hut G O R D H U T, mm -hmm. and uh, I've just started basically in the last, I guess that's what four months now or something like that. Um, being sort of tweeting and looking at at, at Twitter, so. You can find me there, or um, I think that links to a page that is, uh, is a blog, but I'm not particularly active in that, but Gord Hutt uh, at Twitter. Or you can find me hanging out in the uh, Google group for MicroProfile. Okay, cool. Um, or, or, yeah, or you, um, GitHub, if my GitHub ID is Hutchick, H-U-T-C-H-I-G. Mm -hmm. And um, you, if you raise an issue or tag me in any GitHub issue, I'll get notified in my gmail which will make my phone buzz so that that works as well what i would really like to do is uh, to repeat the conversation uh, more deeper with uh, microprofile reactive extensions transactions or there are lots of interesting topics in microprofile in a couple of weeks so we don't have you know 
to reintroduce ourselves so we can just focus just on the topic. So if you have time, it would be great. Yeah, I would love that, Adam. I've really enjoyed it. It's great to speak to you. You've, you've really got a, a good head. Okay, thank you very much.